0: Hi, and welcome to the first CEPAD podcast of 2019. Today, I'm joined by Professor Toby Dodge, Professor of International Relations in the International Relations Department at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Toby is someone who's, whose research I've admired for a long time. He's done a great deal of fascinating work on, on mostly Iraq, but he's also a Kuwait professor, director of the Kuwait program, and research director uh, Iraq, The Conflict Research Programme, the the LSE's DFID Funding Programme. Toby, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I
0: look forward to a fascinating discussion. Thanks, Toby. It's it's really great to have you on. Um, as I said in my long, rambling introduction that's a consequence, I think, of, of too much Christmas indulgence, I've been admiring your work on, on Iraq for, for many years now. I remember reading it during my PhD and, and probably even earlier. But I was wondering, Toby, what was it that, that, that made you get really interested in, in Iraq? Because you seem to use a range of different theoretical, methodological approaches, but you, you you apply them all to to Iraq. What is it about Iraq that struck you, that got you so interested in, in, in these issues?
1: Sure, it's a great question. I, I'm trained as a comparative political scientist, uh, and I did my master's and my PhD at SOAS School of Environmental and African Studies in their political studies department. And I became very interested at the end of my master's about what happens when you drop a state on a society that hasn't had that kind of centralizing, disciplining institutions before. Now, it it could have been anywhere. It could have been in Africa and South Asia. But I started to look at the Middle East, of course, because a lot of the states then were built in the aftermath of the First World War uh, during a mandate period. And um, so just as I was doing my PhD, there were a few people left who who still were alive and had that historical memory. So I went to the Middle East. I did uh, my master's dissertation on state building in Jordan, but there was always this larger, more complex, more violent, to be honest with you, but also more interesting and more politically mobilized country next door, Iraq. And I finally managed to get in and do research on Iraq uh, in the dying days or just before uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003 and have been working on the country ever since, trying to, wrestling with what... uh, uh, 35 years of Ba'athist dictatorship did, and then the the myriad sins and the cunar and incompetences of regime change, and then that civil war and the aftermath uh, largely justified in terms of um, um, ethno-sectarian
0: rhetoric, if not in actuality. So that, that's really fascinating. And I just want to push you a little bit, if I may, in that we're, we're 100 years out from, from the end of the First World War. And 100 years ago, we, we were in a stage where there were international treaties, negotiations, Treaty of Versailles, etc., about creating and imposing these states on, on political organization that didn't have those institutions, as you say. So what was it that... that that pushed you down the direction of, of the Middle East when it could have gone so many other places. Yeah, you're right. It certainly, it certainly could have. Um,
1: I suppose if we were being a bio, a biographical, I grew up during the Lebanese Civil War when, um, before the violence in the Balkans, it was Lebanon and the wider Middle East that dominated right. uh, our news screens and our newspapers. Um, I have a previous life as, as a youth worker, actually working in inner city London, and anyone who's done that done that job will be incredible. Will know how stressful it is. So I used to come course, home. Yeah. And read about Middle East politics and history in my downtime, I and it was uh, my partner who said, "My God, if you can do that at the end of a day working with uh, East End kids, I think you should you should develop it more in terms of a master's and a PhD."
0: So, just to confirm, you were saying that that you read about Middle Eastern politics as a bit of escapism?
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it good downtime and re- if not relaxation, certainly to use a different type of part of my mind than that, sure. that was utilized during when I was a youth worker. And yes, certainly I would have thought that if you look at cognitive psychology of decision makers for example a series of of, of of events that tend to live with them and shape their perception happen there in their early adult lives and in yeah, my adult life. Uh, newspapers and news coverage was dominated by the Lebanese Civil War. I, I haven't really thought about it carefully, but it may well have something to do with my interest in Middle East politics. It's uh, <laughs>
0: right. really fascinating. So then you went on and you did your 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 masters and your PhD at SOAS. Who was it that you were working with at that point then? Well, I think that
1: certainly my, my supervisor is, is the is, is the Intellectually and personally wonderful Charles Tripp, but also at that time in the politics Amazing. department, it, you had a, this is in the early 90s, an incredibly strong social theory. There was Siddipta Kavaraj, who had worked in the subaltern school, Tom Young, who, who works on Africa but was a, a recovering Althusserian. Uh, so you had a lot, and uh, Catherine Dean, who's incredibly smart social theorist. So you had all these people there, certainly interested in empirical areas of the world. Yeah. empirically delineated areas of the world Africa the Middle East South Asia but also wrestling to apply social theory structuralist and post-structuralist theory to the you know so Gramsci was an early influence of mine but very influential in the department at the time Althusser, as I've said and then Michel Foucault so from that point of view it was a, a wonderful place to study because you had a depth commitment to the to case study work, but also a, a very heavy commitment to social theory and philosophy. Probably the the perfect mix for me. Yeah,
0: it it sounds like it. And as I'd mentioned uh, to you before, I think uh, of all of your work, which which I and others obviously have a great deal of respect for, I think my personal favourite is is a, a later piece of yours. I think was it twenty seventeen where you uh, you take Bourdieu to Baghdad. <laughs> ah, indeed. Well, I mean, that would come
1: out of, I think, the previous discussions we've had, and I think work we've both done, and in fact work that has is, is become quite popular. So... If you, it, uh, since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there's been both an upsurge in in, in the use of ethno-symbolic rhetoric or um, ethno-sectarian rhetoric to mobilize the populations, but also the study of that. And sure. from 2003 onwards, I'm I very unhappy, I think very unfulfilled with the way the turn that took in Iraq. A lot of, to be frank, a lot of, um, certainly as I said, A.D. Smith and ethno-symbolism, but beyond that, a lot of primordialism, and, and I would argue base orientalism and so what I've tried what I tried to do and I think the the, the, the pinnacle of that was working on Bourdieu but what I've uh, tried to do is look at kind of more nuanced, more social scientific or more social theory approaches that takes the ideational seriously, Mm -hmm. takes the rational seriously, but doesn't polemicize to one side or the other. And the people that we've all read that we respect um, in this field, I think, then uh, some people like Rogers Brubaker, if you read Brubaker or even Craig Calhoun, I think he's done some really smart work on this as well, if you read them carefully, The the majority of their footnoting is to Pierre Bourdieu. So I think Brubecker and Calhoun are great, but I I wanted. More I wanted, so I, I then ended up working a lot or reading Bordeaux's stuff on social capital, on ideology, a word he's not comfortable with, but also his, his really interesting work um, both on Algeria and then what we'd call it high capitalism in France, um, but also his his kind of ambiguity around the state and, and, sure. and what yeah. the state did. And I think it, it's that work that you're talking about that I then tried to take that nuanced, kind of multifaceted framework and bring it to Iraq after 2003 using these different types of capital to try and explain why at a given time, and I think it only was at a given time after 2003 and possibly up to 2000 and... ..to mobilisation... Uh, triumphing ethnic identity and sectarian uh, religious identity triumphed, and yeah. why that worked then, and it's dropped off since, I suspect. And we could guess I'm talking about the 2018 elections, but why? what would explain it then, um, and, and not in a kind of trans historical, un empirical way? So I think Bourdieu was. Very useful, I think that's one paper there's a, if, if the uh, the gods of, uh, of, of journal reviews are kind to me, there'll be two more papers <laughs> looking at that, looking at Althazair as well, oh, and just looking at both the material and the ideational, the structural and the agental, uh, so, in, in
0: seeking to understand sectarian mobilisation specifically in Iraq as a case study And I think that's one of the things that, that I really admire about your work, Toby, this, this focus on on not just the the sectarian if you will but this idea that you're you're placing it within broader contextual factors such as the state and such as state society relations structural agential relations and i think that that really brings something a little different to these debates about sect based difference sect based violence and things like that so it's it's really refreshing to see you doing this <coughs> Well, it's
1: incredibly kind of you. I, I, I think a lot of people are doing it. Um, it's, it's not just me, and a lot of people are doing it with historical sociology. But I'm a, you know, I was trained as a comparative social scientist, and you know, one of the main units of analysis is the state. And there is clearly, I think, an incredibly fruitful tension between structural explanations and agental explanations. And it's somewhat of a bugbear of mine. I'll put it no stronger <laughs> than that, but an awful. lot lot of explanations of uh, sub-state uh, religious and ethnic mobilization tend to focus on the agental and the instrumental. I mean, Chandra's work sums that up, I think, in, in her book, Constructivist Theories of Ethnic Politics. Uh, we could we could go elsewhere and then come into the Middle East, and I think I cover some of that ground in that piece and subsequent pieces. Now, of course, we can't ignore or even reduce uh, instrumental understandings of top-down sectarianism. But I think you also have a a flourishing, if that's a word, of bottom-up sectarianism, partly driven by... um, New technology, social media, satellite television, and I think we need to capture both the structural and the ideational, the agental, um, and 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 the the instrumental. So, from that point of view, Bourdieu has
0: been a, a good way of helping me do that. It's really, really fascinating hearing you talk, and I'm I'm perhaps slightly more sympathetic than others because of my own interest in, in some of these critical theorists and social theorists. Mm. But it's it's really interesting and and. I'm, I'm really excited to hear that you're you're pursuing this further with these two two papers that are at the subject to uh, the whim of the the gods of journal reviewers so so fingers crossed we get to see those sometime in the coming year or so I guess if you don't you know they haven't been kind <laughs> well, exactly exactly so before we we move on to a different area of discussion, I wonder, Toby, where do you think that the main changes in the in the discussion of Iraqi politics have been in the in the post sort of the past fifteen years or so so post two thousand and three? Where do you think the the main debates have moved to Brilliant.
1: well let, let me start firstly by kind of grounding that in a little bit of history if you let me that course. Um, um Studying Iraq before 2003 was you know, studying an incredibly authoritarian, repressive, violent uh, state that that had tried to some extent successfully to fracture, to atomize, to break mobilizing capacity in society. Now, I was fortunate enough to, to go to Iraq a couple of times before 2003 and carry out some research after 1991 on the effects of sanctions, how sanctions had transformed society. I had somewhat of an insight into that but then you move into 2003 and what had been a very limited information base that interviewing was very difficult, very risky for the people you're interviewing before 2003 and then you have this explosion this tidal wave of empirical data flowing out of Iraq after the invasion, regime change, the civil war and and then where we are now And I, I would freely put my hands up and say that tidal wave of information was a challenge, and I think a challenge to anyone working on Iraq after 2003, both to master the data, if you want, uh, and then to subject it to sustained kind of social science interrogation and then develop sure. understandings from that. So if we look at, at that period from 2003 through to 2018, uh, 2019, now, I think the first set of approaches to try and understand Iraq were guilty of, um, or made the mistake, or were prone to reductivism, to uh, to primordialism, and also to not questioning the causality behind identity politics. Now, I would argue, other people wouldn't, but I would argue that identity politics uh, um, prioritizing ethnic and religious identity were clearly dominant in Iraq for a period of time. That's not interesting. The interesting question is answering why and why that wasn't the case before 2003 and why that's less of the case now. And in in those three sentences, that's been my research project for the last few years. I think we've come through that horrific civil war that started 2004, 2005 and probably ended 2008-2009, we had then somewhat the institutional solidification of the state under the premiership of Nouriel Maliki, certainly the centralization of the state and the threat of a new authoritarianism uh, that didn't come to pass because of, uh, of, of Maliki being expelled from the premiership with the fall of, uh, of Mosul and the rise of, uh, or the reconstitution of Daesh in 2014. But now we have a really interesting... Intellectual academic arena in Iraqi studies where people can both recognize the centrality of identity studies can recognize but also can recognize uh, a kind of harsh, violent Salafism driven forward by Daesh that's now, at least at the moment, been militarily defeated. So you're also looking at the weakness of the state, the lack of institutional penetration of society, the inability of the state to deliver in a meaningful way the dominance of corruption. So at the moment, you have a much more intellectually interesting and analytically fluid situation where we have a, a series of different schools of thought, different units of analysis, different comparative schemas that are being deployed to
0: explain what's going on in Iraq and that's both fascinating but intellectually really stimulating Of course and for anyone who wondered why you didn't ever branch out beyond Iraq and go and explore in, in more detail some of its its neighbours, I think there you've just given a really, really solid explanation for why you're continuing to focus on Iraq at, at, at a time when there are other states that offer so many other types of challenges
1: I think I've done I, I, I've done some across Middle Eastern work um, that did some work on on attempts at uh, neoliberal reform um, and bringing authoritarianism back in, looking at uh, Egypt and Syria before the outbreak. I've done some limited work on collective defence in the Gulf, but or lack of it, um, before the Gattari Saudi schism. But it's. As a comparative social scientist, it's not a contradiction to say that having one case study state and keep on prodding that and seeking to explain it, and especially a state like Iraq has been through authoritarianism. Uh, regime external regime change, collapse, civil war, and now this, I think there's enough there to be working off the moment
0: at least. Yeah, I would certainly agree. Where do you see these types of debates moving forward then, just briefly? That's a that's a great question. Um
1: I I think I, I think people now so if you again if you go back to Iraq's trajectory after 2003, you could argue that the high point of the solidification of political parties mobilizing Iraqi society through ethno-sectarian rhetoric was 2005, and you've had the fracturing of that onwards reaching a high point in 2018. Now, some people argue that Iraq is post-sectarian. I don't think it is. I think those rhetorics still work in the political system. They founded it still work. But you've got room for more work around what the causalities of that were or continue to be or don't continue to be. And also Iraq as at the moment at least, a post-conflict society with an elite pact or an elite uh, political settlement that's clearly failing its population and giving rise to profound corruption. Mm. That That looks like a different set of questions with different social scientific research tools that compares it to other conflict, post-conflict situations beyond the Middle East in in the post-colonial world. I think that will go for really fruitful cross-comparison work.
0: Yeah, and that's that's really exciting stuff there. I think it, it it raises all types of philosophical, theoretical, conceptual, methodological questions. So, I guess lots to be um, intellectually stimulated by moving well, <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah. So, Toby, we're rapidly running out of time, but there is one area that I want to touch on, if I may, just before we um, we wrap this up, and that's. Um, I've spoken to a number of previous guests about this relationship that that academia has with the policy world, and we've heard from from people on both sides of the pond, if you will, about their experiences as academics working in in policy circles. And as someone who's done that, I wonder if you could share some reflections on on how. How you've gone about doing it? How have you tried to translate your own findings to uh, to policy audiences in the most effective way?
1: I think it's it, firstly it, it's really very difficult, and uh, and it's not without profound controversy. I think there are there are two sets of academics in the academy, one who quite rightly defend their right to do academic work, intellectual work, for its own sake, and, and quite rightly. And there are another set of academics uh, who, for normative political reasons, would say it's not an academic's job to have anything to do with governments uh, that they hold power to account and don't advise. And I think you know, that's that's a, a very valid point. And but I thought before 2003, and from, say, 2003 to 2005, and five six. The invasion of I view the invasion of Iraq as such a calamity, and a lot of that the work I did during that time was looking at theories of imperialism, looking at the work that Gramsci had done, and looking at what right. the Bush administration was doing, and saying that's simply wrong, and they and and why have they been so incompetent? That was that. But then around two thousand five six, when the Democrats in the Senate were driving a withdrawal movement, I thought. But pulling American troops rapidly out out of the mess that the United States government had made would make Iraq worse now I'm not sure that's 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 the case anymore but I thought of it at the time and then I was drawn and I was drawn into um, offering advice for what it's worth of both the British government and the United States government amongst others yeah um, I would say uh, I've advised at this stage numerous administrations in in both the United States and governments in Britain I've never seen any of my advice taken I would also say that there's If you do advise governments, there's a a fairly strict distinction between what we do as academics, uh, looking at social theory, social science, seeking to explain the causes of things, to use the motto of LSE, and what policy advice is. And I, I think you see this very much in development studies, for example. I've been reading some wonderful work on elite pacts and political settlements, and I think there is a telling distinction between that work that's done in universities, which is historically grounded, sociologically nuanced and that work which is done to advise governments which is a a separate set of questions methods and approaches so i don't think i think they're two separate disciplines i think carrying over the insights of of academic work to policy is 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 fine as, uh, as long as you're you think you're bringing insights that wouldn't be heard otherwise but i think it all, you know, you shouldn't mistake the two; that they're distinct and separate. And mixing the two has uh, moral problems, normative problems, but intellectual problems. That focusing too much on policy advice actually detracts from and undermines the intellectual power of the things that you're doing.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really important to remember. Are there are there things that, looking back, you would try and do differently if you could? Um.
1: I don't know. So, when, when uh, Iraq and the invasion of Iraq, I think, is think probably one of the most important moments along with 9 uh, 11 of, of, of our generation. Um, and I was working on Iraq at the time. Um, and I think that comes with certain responsibilities. I think it comes with a responsibility to critique, and uh, I've done a lot of critiquing both of the U.S. invasion and a critiquing of the, uh, the, the American and the British policy towards Iraq, but also uh, Iraqi governments that were empowered, set up, and have, have have gained autonomy since the invasion. So there's one responsibility, but it also comes with a responsibility to say... You're doing that wrong. You've got that wrong. And, of course, the, 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 then when they say, All "Right, so how would you do that differently? What do you do? Walk away? Say, no, 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 I'm more than happy to critique you, yeah. but I'm not more than happy to to, to, to deliver positive um, reflections on, on where you should go. And I think it's those three steps, uh, critique Interaction and then suggestion If you cut out the interaction And the suggestion Then I it's on my own personal opinion That you're not Developing Fully the insights that you Have gained from an Intense empirical and theoretical Work on
0: one country Sure, that's really Really interesting stuff Toby Thank you for sharing that, I realise it's it's Going back some years and, and may involve Some, some quite quite personal reflections but i appreciate you sharing them with us nonetheless my
1: pleasure thank you for taking the time and and some fascinating insights and questions from you
0: thank you so much toby it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, i look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon excellent thanks a lot thank you toby take care until the next time